that on. All right, how we doing? Well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, we had a reading assignment this past week. We were to read uh, each of the letters to the seven churches, one each day, for 20 times. A little ambitious, would you not say? Maybe some of y'all don't want to admit it. <laughs> um, okay, uh, you know, here's what we're going to do moving forward in the coming weeks. I realize it's a great way for us to be able to encounter some material that I have, I just can't get to uh, because of limits of time. And so I'm going to put together a reading plan for y'all, and I'm going to let you choose how many times you want to read it through, uh, but it'll follow a seven-day pattern. And so this week, um, or the first three weeks, we were really kind of diving into the middle of the book of Revelation and looking at different parts to kind of try and build the overall perspective of what's going on here with the book of Revelation, the perspective of what we call preterism, which is this idea that the book of Revelation is fulfilled with 70 AD, that picture that you see up there with the fall of Jerusalem, the siege and fall of Jerusalem by the um, Romans, um, that that's really the target of what God's talking about in the book of Revelation, that God's upset, he's mad at the Jewish people for rejecting their Messiah, for rejecting Jesus, the Christ, and they crucified him on the cross. And because of that, because of their rejection, um, now, the now God has bringing his wrath, which is not something unusual because God had done that many times throughout the Old Testament. There were many times when the Jewish people disobeyed God. This is not anti-Semitism. This is just a cyclical pattern that happens all through the Old Testament. Uh, this idea that the Jewish people uh, stray away from God, they betray their, their loyalty, their covenant with him, and then God brings wrath and pours that down on them. And so this was really a, a, another in that cycle um, of, of relationship. Um, and so then last week we started moving sequentially through the book of Revelation. We looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3. This week we're going to look at chapters 4, 5, and 6. Again, I'm not going to be able to cover all this material, so I'm going to shoot out an email, just one this week, on Monday morning that gives you the reading plan for the week. If you'd like to follow along in that way, maybe dig into these chapters and these verses in more detail than what I can do. Um, some folks have asked me, Gordon, where did you come up with all these ideas? Where did, where did you find all of this? About two, 10 years ago, um, I finished my dissertation work on December 31st of 2008. That was the goal finished before the new year. And sure enough, I did. I put it in a binder. I sent it off to the editor. And But because I was doing my dissertation work, I was able to send to the library requests for books. And they would send me anything that I wanted from any other library around the world. And so I decided while I'm waiting on the editor to send this, my dissertation back to me, because it was going to take like six weeks or something, um, that I would do a study on the book of Revelation. So about 10 years ago, I started getting knocks on the door from UPS with books on the book of Revelation. And so I started reading on the book of Revelation, and I realized I read all the different perspectives, everything everybody had to say. You know, some authors would quote certain authors, and you kind of, certain authors bubble up to the surface. And so I spent a lot of my time reading those people that everybody else was quoting. And I read somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 7,000 pages of commentary over six weeks. My wife said it seemed like UPS had a, a like, I was like a, a hub for them, right? They just came knocking on my door literally every day, and I was driving the bus at that time, so I had all kinds of time to read, and so I was sitting on the bus, and I would just be reading through books after commentary after commentary. And so I finally landed on this idea that, you know, the historical approach to dealing with Scripture, which is the way I want to deal with every other book of the Bible, is how I think we ought to deal with the book of Revelation. And when you put it in history, right, you put it in the context of 70 AD, all of a sudden everything that you're reading in the book of Revelation just lines up, seems to be pinpointing at that. So that's kind of how I got to where I'm at. Now, again, we're working sequentially through the book, Revelations 4, 5, and 6 today, not even going to be able to touch chapter 6. 
But um, anyhow, this is the second vision that John has. The first vision is what we looked at last week. The second vision that John has is what we're going to read today. So I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. We're going to read different than what's in your script, what's in the bulletin. I had something a little bit different I wanted to cover. Um, Revelation chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 9 through 14, okay? This is part of the second vision that John has. Here we go, beginning at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I saw around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. I know that was a little bit of a mouthful, but um, that's where we're going to be working toward today. I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 4 um, and just kind of work our way forward to what we just read. Okay, so let's start with Revelation chapter 4. Again, this is the beginning of John's second vision that Jesus gives him. Revelation chapter 4, I'm going to start at verse 2. It says, And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So John sees a throne, and where is this throne at? Where does the verse say? It's in heaven. Y'all are reading good. Stay with me. Verse 3, And he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow. So there's someone who is seated on the throne. Who do you suppose is seated on heaven's throne? God the Father, that's right. Remember, there's three parts of the Trinity. You got God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and uh, God, I'm sorry, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, they are co-equal, co-eternal, uh, simultaneously existing. And so the part of the Godhead that's seated on the throne in heaven is God the Father. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what the scriptures tell us. And so the person that, that John is looking at, seated on the throne in heaven at this point in his, in his vision, is none other than God the Father. Um, let's take a, and so what unfolds in the rest of this chapter is it, a description of the heavenly throne room itself. So let's take a look at some of the description that it gives. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, around the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments. So around the throne of God, there are these other thrones, smaller thrones, I would suppose, um, and they're sit, seated in those are the 24 elders of heaven. Now, there are people who have written dissertations on who these 24 elders are. Is it Adam? Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Isaiah? I mean, who are the people that we're talking about here? Well, I have no idea. The Bible never tells us who the 24 elders are, never identifies them. So don't ask me who they are because I can't help you out with that. Read somebody's dissertation. All right, middle of verse 6, it says, Also around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Verse 7. The first living creature has a face like a lion. The second living creature has a face that looks like an ox. The four, third living creature has a face that looks like a man. And the fourth living creature has a face that looks like an eagle when it's flying. Now, I don't know if y'all ever seen an eagle when it's flying, but I imagine it's not something that you want to like go up and pet or anything like that. But anyhow, so it's this idea that there's these four living creatures that are around the throne of God. And these living creatures appear at other places in Scripture. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 1, I'm not going to ask you to go there, but in Ezekiel chapter 1, he pokes his head up to the clouds of heaven and he has a vision of God's 
seated on his throne. And right there with God seated on his throne are these four living creatures. And he describes them very much like what John sees. They've got six wings, two, three sets. And with one of their wings, they're covering their body. With one of their wings, they're flying in the air. With one of their wings, they're covering their face. And their wings have eyes all over them. It's kind of symbolic of how they can see everything. Don't miss anything. And so if you want some extra credit, you can go over there and read Ezekiel chapter 1. But these are kind of very sinuous texts where Ezekiel chapter 1 pokes his head up to the clouds. John pokes his head up to the clouds. Both of them are seeing pretty much the same thing. Um, Then it says, skip on down to verse 8. It says that these creatures sing, and here's the song that they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Friends, that's the eternal song of heaven. It's the song that heaven is always singing, holy, holy, holy is God. They don't sing love, love, love. They don't sing mercy, mercy, mercy. All those, those are wonderful qualities that God has. The preeminent quality of God the Father in heaven is that he is holy, and that's what heaven is compelled to to sing. So they're singing this song of heaven. Another guy in the Old Testament that had a similar poke his head up through the clouds vision of God seated on his throne was a fellow by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God seated on his throne with his train filling the temple. And he says, and he saw these cherubim, and these cherubim were singing Isaiah 6 and verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So there's that eternal song of heaven. My point in pointing all this out is that John, Ezekiel, Isaiah, when you cross-reference John's vision with other Old Testament references of people having a vision of God in heaven, we see all these similarities. So what is it, just confirming here, that John has a vision of God the Father on his throne in heaven. This is not a vision of some far off something. This is John seeing, looking into heaven itself. All right, let's skip forward to chapter five. Again, there's more discussion in chapter four, more description of what the heavenly throne room looks like. That's all we'll tackle for now. Look at chapter five, beginning at verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So there's a seal, I'm sorry, a scroll in God's hands, and it's sealed with seven seals. You say, well, what is the number seven there for? Well, the seven in Scripture is always referring to completion. Perhaps that's what it's referring to, talking about how whatever's inside of this thing is complete. Um, But again, we try to make things out of stuff that necessarily the Scripture don't make something out of. So we need to kind of step back for a minute because sometimes there's the seven stars. We read about them last week that Jesus is holding in his hands. And it goes on to say in the scripture, this is what the seven stars represent. And then there's these seven lampstands. And it says, this is what the seven lampstands represent. And so we, the scripture tells us, well, this is what these seven things are. But in this occasion, it doesn't. It just says that there's seven seals. So don't try to make something out of something that maybe isn't there. Y'all okay with that? I don't know if y'all are following me or not today. Maybe I'm just up here on my own. All right, but I'm going to keep going because I'm having fun. All right, um, let's keep reading. Verse 2, it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that's hell, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Skip down to verse 5. It says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, because John had been weeping because nobody was showed up to open the scroll. There was nobody available that could open up this scroll. And so John's weeping, and then the elder taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, look, behold, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who are we talking about here? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the root of David or the root of Jesse, David's father? This is none other than a historical reference to 
There you go. You're on board with me now. All right, to the Lord Jesus. And so that's who we're talking about here. Um, Jesus is in the bloodline of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is in the bloodline of King David. Jesus, the text says, has the authority to open this scroll. He can walk up and he can pop, 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 all seven seals, and he can unroll and open the scroll. Um, now let's talk about the scroll for a minute, okay? I'm going to jump into the Old Testament for a little bit, so just hang with me. You've got to put your thinking caps on here, okay? Here we go. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Um, Daniel has been receiving visions of his own from God, revelations, and in these visions, God has told him about the rise and fall of several empires that will transpire over the course of human history. Um, in Daniel chapter 7 through 11, God tells him about all these details. God tells him about the rise and fall of the Babylonians, the rise and fall of the Persians, then the Greeks that come after them, and the Romans that come after them. I have a map here for you of the Babylonian Empire, right? This thing was established around, some people debate about this, some people say 626, but I think it's more like 610 B.C. when they actually took over this whole area. But around 610 B.C. all the way through to 539 B.C., the Babylonians ruled this part of the world. Um, another slide for you here of the Persian Empire. Um, a guy by the name of Cyrus the Great, <clears throat> also called Darius the Mede, um, he comes walking out into the scene in 539. He takes over, without really much uh, pushback, the Babylonian Empire. And so it's pretty much the same piece of land, right? Um, and then in, I don't know exactly what the date is, but you can look it up on Google a little bit later. But the Persians end up falling to the Greeks. So the Greeks take over this empire. I think it was around, I, I do know, it was 332 BC, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. You've heard about Alexander the Great in history. Alexander the Great steps out in the history, and uh, he takes over uh, the Persian empire and um, defeats the Persians. And then he dies a little bit later, and they break up his, his empire into four different parts uh, by his generals that were helping him. <clears throat> um, he mysteriously died by a uh, malaria. Hmm. Interesting. I'm sure his generals didn't have anything to do with that. But um, anyhow, so, uh, and then after, after um, the Greeks come the Romans, uh, and the Romans take over this part of the world. But you'll see on the map there, the Romans really didn't care much about the Far East. They were more concerned about the land around Mediterranean. But you can see there that they did occupy that portion of land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. They occupied North Africa. And so they're kind of the rulers of this part of the world. And so in these visions that God gives to Daniel, he's telling him about the rise and fall of all these nations. Now, one of the things that God does not do, just hang on to this for a minute, is he does not tell them about the rise, about the fall, rather, of the Roman Empire. He just tells, tells Daniel, hey, look, the the did I say that right? The fall of the Roman Empire. That the, he tells them when the Romans are going to come along, but he doesn't say that when they're going to peter out, when they're going to uh, you know, end, when they're going to come to an end. And you say, well, why does God do that? Well, it's because God has an agenda in human history, and when God completes his agenda, the Romans are in charge of this part of the world. And so God's agenda complete, uh, there's no need to talk about the end of the Roman Empire. I mean, he could have gone on the rest of history if God wanted to, but everything that he had to accomplish, accomplished during the Roman occupation, during the Roman Empire. And so um, God didn't talk about the end of the Roman Empire. There was no need for that. Um, okay, so God gives Daniel some visions. They're about the rise and the fall of all these empires. And then when all of Daniel's visions are done, Daniel gets done writing them down, and God says to him, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. 
And then he repeats this. Daniel goes ahead and does what God says. He seals it up. And then he says to him again in verse 9, he says, now that you've done that, verse 9, go your way, Daniel, because the words are now closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Um, In other words, Daniel, you just go on about your way. You just go on about your life. Um, Bless you, brother. We're We're all concluded. We're all done here. Now, this raises one more question, and that's the key question. The question is, when is the time of the end? When is all of Daniel's visions supposed to be completed? When does that all come to a final head and conclusion? A little bit back into Daniel again, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 24 and 25. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Here's what verse 24 reads. It says, 77s, talking about how long all this is going to take. 77s are decreed for you and for your people, and it goes on to talk about some more stuff there. But there's a time frame that God gives, 77s. That word sevens, let me show it here on the screen, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabuah, and Shabuah literally translated means sevens. Um, in most cases, when you're reading through the Old Testament, it'll translate weeks. It'll, it's like referring to the seven days of a week. And so it's a heptad, it's a grouping of seven somethings. In some occasions, it's a grouping of seven days, that would be a week. In other occasions, it would be the grouping of seven weeks, that would be the Feast of Weeks that the Jewish people celebrated. It was a 50-day period, it was seven weeks plus one day, 50 days, that's Pentecost. Um, And in some cases, it would be a grouping of 50, I'm sorry, of seven years. So this period could be seven days, seven weeks, or potentially seven years. On this occasion, it's talking about a, a... seven-year period. And the reason that we know that is because God's telling, um, telling Daniel that this rise and fall of nations is not going to happen over a period of seven days, right? And he's telling Daniel, this rise and fall of all these empires is not going to happen over a period of 70 weeks. This rise and fall of nations is going to happen over the period of, and we have, the, we have the benefit of hindsight here, over the period of many, many years of these seven-year periods times 70. So let me just show you another map here or another, not map, sorry, another slide here that shows you verse 4, or verse 24, and you can see there kind of the math equation. We've got a math teacher in the building right here. Do we have any other math? Anybody like math? Yeah. All right, so we're going to throw you some algebraic equations here. So we got 70 times 7 year period, and what you end up with when you multiply 7 times 7, 70 times 7, is 490 years. And so that's the time frame that Daniel can expect all this to take place. But now if you go to verse 20, and, and God says, you know, you're going to start counting at a certain point. You say, well, how do I know when I'm supposed to start counting the 490 years? Go to verse 25. Let's take a look at verse 25. It says, know therefore and understand this from the issuing of the decree, of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes, that is Jesus, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens plus 62 sevens. Now, let me show you another slide. Here comes algebra. Ready? Um, this slide has got the seven period of seven times seven years, so seven sevens, sevens, seven-year periods. I'm going to add to that the 62, I know it's getting a little bit crazy, 62 seven-year periods. So add the seven plus 62, you get 69, and then you multiply that by the seven-year period, and you end up with a period of, all right, 480, my math's good, right? 483 years. And so what he says here, if you looked at verse 25, it says you can start the count for 480, of a 483-year window. You can start the count at the decree of the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem. In the year 458 B.C., everybody say that with me, 
458 B.C. I'm going to quiz you on that in just a second to see if you heard me. 458 B.C., a guy by the name of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, made his first decree that the Jews could uh, go and rebuild Jerusalem. And this didn't work out real good for him. A little bit later under Nehemiah in 444 B.C., that was the one. But that was the first time, that was the first decree that the Jews could go back and rebuild in 458 B.C. And if you count from 458 B.C., 483 years forward, you land on 26 AD. Uh, I got a timeline for you here. You can see all this playing out. If you count 490 years from 458 BC, you land on 33 AD. So what he's saying here is that from the time of the decree, right? From the time of the decree, go forward 483 years, the Messiah will walk out on the scene. And when did Jesus walk out on the scene? 483 years from 458 B.C. in the year 26 A.D., exactly when Jesus walked out on the scene. Exactly when Jesus was baptized, exactly when Jesus entered into the wilderness, exactly the year when Jesus began his public ministry. Anybody got chill bumps? Or is it just from the air conditioning that's too cold in here? <laughs> uh-huh. Isn't that sweet? Right? <clears throat> so you say, how did God know that? How did, how did Daniel know that? Well, because he serves a God who can look down the corridor of time for whom knowing the future is no different than you and I know in the past. And God counted out the years and said, Daniel, all you got to do is put this on your calendar 483 years from now. All this stuff's going to happen. And sure enough, it happened just like God said it would. Um, how about them apples? Amen, right? So the 483 years wraps up when Jesus steps out onto the scene in human history. The 490 years, the 70 times 7 years, wraps up in 33 AD, just as Christianity is exploding on the world scene. Now, I know that was a detour. I know that was a long detour. But that, let's go back to our text now, and we'll see how all this ties in. Look again at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of God, who was seated on a throne, a scroll... And it was sealed with seven seals. What is God holding in his hand? Many scholars believe that God is holding in his hand Daniel's scroll. Daniel's scroll. And he says that 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 thing's going to be sealed up, and we won't need it again until the end, until the time of the end. Not the end of time, but until the end, until the time of the end, which is the end of that first age. We talked about that a couple weeks ago where there's two ages of human history, the age of the law, the Old Testament age, and that came to an end in 70 AD, and God says, look, we're going to need that scroll when that period comes to a close, comes to an end, when everything is fulfilled. All right, well, maybe that didn't give you chill bumps. I don't know. I thought it was pretty good stuff, but that's uh, all I want to cover for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I really appreciate the history lesson. I really appreciate uh, the math. Um, flexed my brain a little bit this morning on some algebra. But how does that help me you know, get the kids off to school? How does that help me pay my bills? What difference does all this make to where I'm living? Um, it's a great question. Let me see if I can answer that for us. <clears throat> you know, one thing that this passage conveys is that opening the scroll for the occupants of heaven was a really big I mean, they were, they were, everybody was focused on it. I mean, they made an announcement about it. I don't know how rare announcements are in heaven. I imagine it's not something that happens all that often, right? Um, but the angel says, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who can do this? 
Who can open the scroll and break its seal? Um, I imagine everyone stopped. And the activity and the hustle and bustle of heaven and the tour guide and the question and answer group, right? And the shuffleboard group. I don't know, whatever's going on up there. But I imagine everything just kind of took a time out. And the angels stopped flapping their wings and the heavenly choirs stopped singing and the whole place just went. And it grew silent. And everyone was looking around. And they heard the announcement. Everybody's wondering, who can open the angel's scroll? And it says that they, verse 3, that they began an instantaneous inventory of heaven. No one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that's a reference to hell, was able to open the scroll or look into it. There was no one anywhere in all of everywhere that they could find. That was, I mean, even guys like, you know, the mighty angel Gabriel couldn't step up and pop, 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 break those seals. And John's reaction to all this is that he's devastated. Look at verse 3, Revelation 5 and verse, I'm sorry, verse 4, Revelation 5 and verse 4. It says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found. John can't hold back the tears. I mean, this is one of those phone calls you don't want to get. This is one of those knocks on the door you hope you never receive. And John's having one of those moments. He's just totally devastated. The guy is emotionally wrecked because no one was found. Who's worthy? We got the scroll. It's time. It's time. We need to open it. We can't open it. And we've been waiting 490 years for this to happen. And no one was found. He's a basket case. Heaven was having one of those moments. The scroll is in God's hand. God has pulled it off the shelf, wiped the dust off it perhaps, and now it's time to open the scroll and there's no one found who's worthy. There's no one found who's acceptable. There's no one found who's capable of opening this mighty scroll. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, and then one of the 24 elders said to me, stop your crying, John, weep no more. And he points out, he says, look, we got somebody. Skip on down to verse 7. And Jesus walked up to the throne of God and took the scroll. Took, think about that. Think about this scene and have everything just stopped. Dead stopped. And Jesus walks up to God the Father on his throne. And he takes the scroll out of God the Father's hands. And heaven responds. And here's what heaven responds with. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. They were compelled to just worship before the Lamb. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. Heaven stopped singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which it had been singing literally forever. And it sang a new song. Worthy are you, here's the song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And why is Jesus worthy? The scriptures tell us because you were slain and by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God. We were bought by Jesus's blood. Verse 11, and then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, too many angels to count. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the land. Heaven's just blown up, right? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, 
and glory and blessing. And they just keep saying this to receive power and might and honor and glory and blessing. And heaven can't stop. They're just compelled. We just got to say it. And they just keep singing this new song, verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Verse 14, and the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they began to worship the Lord Jesus. You know, when I reflect on this text, and I was reflecting this morning, this one of those moments, sorry. I was reflecting this morning on my way in in the car, and I was thinking about this verse, and I was thinking about this heavenly scene, and I just feel so unworthy. I mean, I think about how glorious Jesus is, and I think about how marvelous he is, and he's deserving of power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing, and I'm just like, I am so not that. But friends, the reason why he is so worthy, as the text says, verse 9, is because, Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you bought Gordon, and by your blood you bought Jim Bob, and by your blood he bought each and every one of us, friends. That's why he's worthy. He did what you can't do for yourself. He did what nobody in heaven could do for you or me. He did what he alone could do. He walked down into this earth. He lived a sinless life. He gave up the rights to his life. He allowed himself to be put on a cross. Don't ever think, friends, that Jesus went there because the Romans made him go. Jesus could have at any point snapped his fingers, angels come down, I'm out of here. Jesus went to the cross, suffered his death on the cross, willingly for you and for me, and because of that, he is worthy. Verse 12 says, who was slain worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, in just a few moments, we'll come around this table and be reminded of why Jesus is worthy. These elements representing his broken body and his shed blood. And then we're going to join the heavenly choir singing the new song of heaven. And I'll encourage us this morning as we sing this song to worship the one whom heaven has declared is worthy and whom you and I know is worthy of our praise. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for talking to us this morning. We've been in your word this week. We got our ears open. Thank you for doing that for us, Jesus. As we gather around this table, we celebrate your broken body, your shed blood, this reminder not just of what you did for us, but this reminder, Lord, that you are worthy of our worship. And one day, Lord, we're going to be able to jump in there with that heavenly choir, literally in your presence, and sing a new song. Lord, we ask that you take the words which we sing today, will you take this moment of reflection, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would just just ooze out of our fingertips, Lord, that you would just come alive within us, Lord. We would know a mighty encounter with you. We give you this space of time. We commit it to you in Christ's holy name.